So open your Bibles, if you'll have them open, at uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Um, this chapter is, is in a sense the, the culmination of the book of Hebrews. Um, obviously there is chapter 13, and we'll look at that next week. But that's by way of a kind of appendix, a very useful appendix, but it, it, the sort of logical conclusion of, of the book of Hebrews we find in chapter 12. And so this idea that we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, actually, the new New International Version says the pioneer and finisher, which is perhaps slightly better. Perhaps I should have changed it on the slide. Uh, but it reminds us that Jesus is the, the beginning and the end. So before we dive into chapter 12, I'd like to make two observations First of all, chapter 11, obviously, was history. It was about all those heroes of faith from the past. Chapter 12 is written almost entirely in the present tense. So the command is now fix your eyes on Jesus, not somehow for the, for the future, but now fix your eyes on Jesus. And even when he's talking, comes back to talking about the city of God, he doesn't say you will come to that, Though, in, of course, in a sense, that's true. He says, you have come, in verse 22. Even in verses 26 to 29, it's in the present tense. We are receiving what was promised. Of course, we only receive it finally, at a later, in one sense, later. But, but he says, now in the present tense, we are receiving all these things that God has promised. So why does he put it in the uh, present tense? I think it's because... He wants us to th remember that all this stuff is not pie in the sky. You, may could, you might think, oh, it's all right for all those guys, you know, Abraham and, and David and that crowd. And yeah, sure, we, we know that eventually, of course, we're going to, um, you know, the, the, the city of God will be on earth. But yeah, it doesn't have much to do with what we do now, does it? Um, but no, the writer wants to say, this needs your attention now. When you go back into the world, when you finish reading this letter, when we finish this sermon in this Lord's Day, go back to the, the world and the life in this world, you need to be, have these things in your mind now. And you need to be giving them your attention now. So the first observation is that it's all written in the present tense. <coughs> and the second thing I'd like to point out is that, as I say, this is kind of the logical culmination of the book of Hebrews. And so not surprisingly, all the, um, everything in this chapter, and largely everything in this chapter, reiterates the themes of the letter that we've already met. So um, in verse 2, we talk about Jesus, the, the author, or I say, or perhaps better, the pioneer. And of course, that, the same thought occurs in uh, chapter 2, verse 10. There he's described as the pioneer of faith, but here he's not only the pioneer, but the finisher, the perfecter, the completer as well. But it's picking up that thought from chapter 2, verse 10. He talks about, in verses 7 to 11, he talks about discipline and childhood. And you remember in chapter 6, verse 1, he's told the Hebrews, the, the, the readers, his Hebrews listeners, that it's time they grew up. And so he returns to this idea of growing up in verses 7 to 11. 
In verses 14 and 16 of this chapter, he talks about the need for holiness. That's, of course, one all the way through the epistle, but for instance, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, he emphasizes the need for holiness. Just last week in chapter 11, we were looking at the city built by God and the city that the fathers were seeking. And we have it described for us here in verse 22, that city built by God. Even the angels, you remember chapter 1, the angels got a mention. And the angels uh, pop up again here in verse 22, but in their proper place, surrounding the throne of God. And of course, the, the central theme of, the, um, of Hebrews in chapter 7 to 10 is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we meet, of course, in uh, verse 24. And then towards the end, we're reminded again that reminder we find towards the beginning of the letter in chapter 2, verse 1, the need to pay careful attention to what God has said. And that pops up again in verse 25. So all these themes that have run through the epistle up to now are all sort of brought together in this, um, in this chapter 12. But if you or I were sort of writing this, we might just put conclusion, I have said so-and-so and just listed them, but the writer doesn't do it that way. It's not just a, a kind of list. Rather, there's a whole... Um, the chapter has a structure and a dynamic of its own. And um, it's divided into two main sections, as you can see, there four subsections. Um, the first half of the chapter uh, are two helpful metaphors for Christian progress, ways of thinking about living as a Christian and making progress as a Christian. And then... Um, as we'd expect, all the way through, we get these warnings in the book of Hebrew. This one, I, I think, is the sixth one, but I, don't, uh, don't quote me on that. But uh, it is the, the culminating one. And um, again, we can split that into two bits. It's a, it's a little bit longer than some, but I think we can split it up into the community, guarding the community in verses 12 to 24, and the NIV heading not withstanding, I think it does start in verse 12, not in verse 14, the, the, uh, the warning section. And, uh, and then there's a final exhortation, which I've called now, listen up, at the end. So we're going to divide the, um, the chapter up into those four sections and, and again, go through it and see what we can get out of it. So we start with running the race in verses 1 to 3. I don't think we're really supposed to think of sort of the, the dead saints, the people of God who are in heaven, are kind of peering over the pan, parapet, watching to see how we get on. I mean, there's nothing, that, anything else in the scripture, I think, that particularly suggests that. But that's nevertheless kind of the implication here, even if we're not meant to take it very literally, because what we have here is the image of a running stadium, isn't it? The uh, Romans and Greeks were very keen on competitions and athletics and the like. And what we have here is the image of a running track. We're in an athletic statement, stadium, and we're surrounded by the crowd. 
But this isn't just any crowd, because all these spectators, these witnesses, are in fact previous competitors. They like to do that, don't they? When you're watching a sporting event on the television, often the cameraman spots somebody in the crowd and focuses on that person in the crowd, and you realize, you say, oh yes, he was, he's still the world record holder, or you know, that, that lady was Olympic champion 20 years ago, something like that. And why, why are they there? Well, for the current competitors, that's both an encouragement and a challenge, isn't it? It's an encouragement because it shows them that the race can be run, that the prize can be obtained, given the determination to win, because they've already done it. They've shown that it can be done. But it's also a challenge, because they've completed their race, haven't they? And again, he's probably thinking of those Old Testament heroes of faith that are listed in chapter 11. They've already run the race. They've already reached the goal, as it were, even if they've not has quite got to the prize giving yet. They've already run, they've done their, their race. But now it's your turn in front of the TV cameras. Now it's your turn to show that the race can be run and to run it with determination. But then he reminds us actually there's even more than that because in the VIP box, in the royal box, is Jesus himself. And he, as it were, was the pioneer, the real pioneer, the one who really showed how the race should be run. He was the greatest competitor of all, one might say, in verses 2 and 3. The one that showed how the race should really be run. Look what he endured to obtain the prize. And we notice it does say he endured it to obtain the prize. And if he could endure that, we should not lose heart. We should keep our eye on him as we run the race ourselves of the Christian life. So we need to think about the spectators, find them as an encouragement, but not an intimidation. And we need to have the right attitude to the race, don't we? Some people you see, if you watch the marathons on the television, you see some people will run it dressed as a gorilla or a chicken or something. Um, but they're not serious competitors, are they? They're, they're just doing it for fun. They're not running with the intention or the expectation of winning. The real athlete, athlete runs with patience and determination. The real athlete has a strategy that gives her the best chance of winning. You know, you don't, if you're running a marathon, you don't sprint the first hundred yards and then collapse in a heap. You run with patience, determination, looking forward. And um, to keep on till the end, I don't know whether you saw this, but a few years ago in the Winter Olympics, I think it wasn't the last one, but the one before, but there was um, a snowboarder who had had her race won, more or less. She was in sight of the finish line and she was well ahead of the competition. But then with the finish in sight, she took her eye, as it were, off the finish line. Arrogance and overconfidence took over 
what did she do? She put in an entirely unnecessary jump and um, she fell on landing and so of course she lost the race within sight of the finish. She didn't have the right attitude. She didn't have that attitude that any sportsman has to have that it's, it's, it's not over till it's over. That until you've got there, the race is not won. So we need to run our race with patience and perseverance and determination and that's what we're supposed to learn from the running track. And of course the real athlete, so he doesn't wear a gorilla suit, the real athlete strips for action. Get rid of any unnecessary weight, you know, even your running suit, you want it to be as light as possible. You don't want to carry any weight that you don't have to. Anything that might trip you up. What does the writer mean by this? Well, I think the weight can be just the affairs of the world which can deflect us from the prize. Of course, we do need to live in the world, but remember Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And I think that's perhaps what he's, uh, the writer has in mind here, not be cluttered up with the things of this world. Not that there's anything wrong with going around wearing a gorilla suit if that's what you'd like to do, but, but not if you, it's not going to help you to win the race. So let's not be cluttered with the things of this world. And even worse than that are the things that can trip us up. And by that I think he means the sins that we can keep going back to. And he reminds us, that, you know, you, you'll just trip over if you keep can't put aside those sins that we find so difficult to, to avoid. Um, it's like trying to run a marathon with your shoelaces tied together. You're just going to fall flat on your face. And so we do need to actively to discard these hindrances, the weight of the world and the sins that we find in our own hearts. If we're going to run with determination and perseverance, we need to put these things aside. So we need to think of the spectators, have the right attitude and wear the right kit. The other thing, of course, uh, an athlete needs is training. And I guess there was a continuation of the idea here, but the writer at this point changes his metaphor because he thinks of discipline as training. And we find this in verses 4 to 11. I think it's worth making the point that discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Strange, actually. I thought, let me think of a name that nobody in the congregation is going to have. And I thought of the name Billy, and now we've got a Billy here. But <laughs> um, I was going to say, when, when um, mum says to you know, her child, Billy, go and tidy your bedroom. That's not a punishment as such. But it is Discipline. It's part of learning to be an adult. But of course, occasionally, we don't learn that lesson and punishment is required to enforce it. And so in verses uh, 5 and 6, he does quote that quotation. I forgot to look up where it was from, but it's a quotation from the Old Testament um, saying that the Lord chastises those whom he loves because he's, um, he wants us to make progress Discipline can be unpleasant, but it's only a fool who rejects it, isn't it? And parents who don't discipline their children in this way are, are neglectful. It's 
the way we think of them. We would criticize them and say they, they don't really care for their children. You know, the child may say, oh, you don't love me, but actually, in their hearts, they know that actually the converse, exactly the opposite is the case. The parent that really loves their child will discipline them to grow up as uh, proper citizens. It's the neglectful parent, the one who doesn't care, who doesn't discipline their children. And um, as the writer says, it's as if they're, uh, you know, actually said they're illegitimate children. I don't know whether he's criticizing the children there, but surely not. He's criticizing the, the parent there in a sense um, because, you know, they're just children I don't care about. You know, I, they're, not, they're not my real children that I really want to adopt and want to look after and keep. So if we're not disciplined, it says that we're actually children that God doesn't really care about at all. But the ones that God does care about, he will discipline. And of course, parents don't always get it right. And the writer reminds us of that in verse 10. But here we're talking about the wisest of all fathers. Verse 9. So it might not be obvious to Billy how tidying his room is going to make him a better brain surgeon in later life. At the time, he probably doesn't think it is. But actually it is. The habits of care and tidiness that are inculcated by his parents will serve him well for the future. Help him to be a good citizen. And when we go through hardships of any kind, particularly suffering, it might actually be hard to see how this is useful to us. But just in case we can't see it, the writer tells us. He tells us at the end that in fact... This is the way to righteousness and peace. Verse 11. That when we go through these things, it's not just because God wants to make things difficult for us, but rather this is the way that we, we find righteousness and peace. It might not be quite obvious, immediately obvious, why that is, but that seems to be what the writer is telling us here. That as we put our trust in God and, it, and as we keep our eyes on Jesus when we go through difficulties of all sorts whatever it is and he mentions various sorts of difficulties then this is actually training us up in righteousness and peace so we have those two metaphors of the running track and discipline as training training us in righteousness and peace and um, we need to keep those in mind uh, well, of course we need to keep those in mind, that's why he's told us them, but they're ways to help us think about running the Christian race, living the Christian life. And when we come up against these things, when you know it just all seems too much trouble and we're still only halfway through the marathon and it's, uh, you know, it's too far to go, we hit the wall, as the coaches say, then remember that the race can be run and we... Um, the the Lord has, has run it and we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And then again, when we find ourselves suffering, remember that this is part of the process. This is what the Lord has to, to teach us through these things. Otherwise, we would think it's all us, wouldn't we? And we wouldn't uh, realize that we, we need changing. We need to change and we need to struggle. And then we come to the 
the, the, the warning, the great warning as it were, and it's uh, slightly extended and it, as most of these do, there's some encouragement as well as the warning. Um, but we find this in the second half of this chapter. And I'll, again, I'll divide it into two bits. First of all, guarding the community of God and then um, uh, the, the final exhortation at the end. Now, no metaphor's perfect. And of course, the problem with um, the running track illustration of the Christian life is that in a running track, of course, you only get one winner. And indeed, <laughs> the point of a, a running track, the point of a running competition is to beat everybody else. That's why you're there, to do that. But the Christian life is not run that way. The Christian life, if you like, is a, is a team event. Um, and so he moves on to remind us that we live that life in a community. That the Christian race isn't the rat race. That um, if we find our fellow Christians struggling, we don't rejoice that that's one fewer competitor to trouble us. Rather, in verse 13, we take the trouble to help them on their way as well. He says, make the path straight for those who are stumbling and struggling so that they won't be disabled altogether but rather will be we help them on their way to finish the race for themselves and then he reminds us that sin damages not just us but the church in verse 15 we need to watch out for anything that might divide us anything that might tear us apart and certainly competitiveness in that sense within the church is not going to do us any good at all a bitter root might grow up. We need to be united, working together, pressing on together. And it's mainly the Christian community, I think, with which the writer is concerned, but even here it doesn't seem to be entirely that, because in some ways we find that the blessings of this kingdom spill out into the world, and he seems to hint at that in verse 14, doesn't he? He says, live at peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness we won't see God. That's actually a remarkable thing, isn't it? Just think what he's actually saying there. Live at peace with all men, presumably meaning largely those outside the church. But be holy. Be separate. Be set apart from the world. That's what holy means, isn't it? Being set apart. Is that even possible? How on earth can you do that? Every day, don't we, we see challenges. Just read about that baker in Northern Ireland, haven't we, who wouldn't bake a gay marriage cake. You could say he wasn't living at peace with, with the world. It's difficult, you have to make Wisdom, you need wisdom and caution, don't you, to, to navigate this. I'm not suggesting at the moment he'd made the wrong decision. I think he'd probably made the right decision, but there are two sides to it. Um, it does tell us to live at peace with as much as you can with all men. And this is what we're required to do. We're required to do both those things. We don't want to bring Christ into disrepute by being obnoxious and fractious always um, seeking confrontation with the world, always getting at people and, and saying 
you know, you just look how holy I am. You're, you're not. Look how awful you people are. But neither do we want to bring Christ into disrepute by immoral behavior. To tolerate sin in the church is lethal. It will break up the community, as we've said in, in verse 15. And it will prevent us from inheriting God's blessing, as he tells us in verses 16 and 17. And just to say something on this, I think where possible, Christian holiness works more by example where the church is the light of the world than by confrontation. Now, I'm not sure that's always the case. I think there are occasions when we do need to confront the world openly. And yet the, the things that Jesus says about it are more the church being the light of the world, the light set on a hill. People might, shall see your good deeds. And, uh, and be changed by that. And you might say, well, the Old Testament prophets thundered their message. And they did thunder the message of judgment to the... Um, well, they certainly talked about those outside the, 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 the nation of Jerusalem and did indeed pronounce judgment on the nations around. And yet they actually did it to the Jews and to the, Israel, the house of Israel. That was where the message was delivered to. So while there is a message of judgment, even in those days, I think it was meant to be more that the people of God should be a witness to the people around. And in fact, the problem was that they were as bad or not worse as the, than the nation surrounding. So sometimes we need to confront the world, and yet we are told also to, to live at peace as far as we can with all men, but to be holy so that our separateness is not the separateness of putting a wall up, shutting ourselves away in some cloister somewhere, but rather shining, you know, the, the lights, city set on a hill cannot be hid. So why do we make an effort to hide it as we do sometimes? We should be demonstrating that the kingdom of God is a better kingdom, a more just kingdom. Uh, a more caring kingdom than anything the world may have even though it claims otherwise. But still, you might up to now you might be thinking that this is all a bit much. Um, this is all rather tough. <laughs> making it all seem rather hard work. And so the writer wants us to give us encouragement because he says this isn't a matter of gloom and doom. He tells us in verse 18. The church of God may appear to be weak and fragile and suffering and uh, rather miserable sometimes. And it is true that we need to be careful not to damage it. But actually, it's not that sort of community at all. It's not a community that's founded on the fear of judgment and on those signs of terror and exclusion. He reminds us of all those scary things that happened on the Mount Sinai when the law was given. But he says, you haven't come to that mountain at all. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where God may indeed be met. And what are the characteristics of that city? Joy, verse 22. There was this, uh, there's this stuff at the beginning of the epistle about angels and people were 
um, talking about angels as though you know, you're supposed to worship angels instead of Jesus. But no, the angels are there, yes. But they are joyful in joyful praise for the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Because they are rejoicing that there are those who are gathered to God from the sons of, of men. It's based on grace, verse 24. It's based, based on citizenship, verse 23. If we're washed by the sprinkled blood of Christ, we needn't fear to enter the kingdom of God because that blood has brought us citizenship. We're listed in the official register of residents of the city if we are truly people of the city of God. There's a register, there's a list of names, an electoral register, as you might say, or a list of citizens. And if we have truly, those who have had our citizenship bought for us by, uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're recorded as such. Citizenship, of course, in those days was very important because not everybody was a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, you had all sorts of protections under the law, which you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so then there had to be a list of who was, you know, it had to be recorded who was or was not a, a Roman citizen. And here he's saying, well, you may, may or may not be Roman citizens. You may or may not be citizens of the United Kingdom or the EU or some other nation. But if you are those whose citizenship has been bought by the blood of the Lamb, then you are citizens of that heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, he says, that's nothing less than that city whose builder and architect is the living God. Verses 22 and 23, that city that we found that the Old Testament heroes of faith were looking for. I said they could have gone, Abraham could have gone back to earth if he'd wanted to, but he didn't. We could go back to this world if we want to, but he says that would be the wrong decision to make. That because we've come to a better city, that city that really is built by the living God. And so we move now to that dramatic climax. And I think this is all rather low key, actually, <laughs> considering what it actually says. <laughs> the language is really quite restrained, understated. But then you read what he actually says, and you think, hang on a minute. You can hear the sirens starting up. You can hear the alarms going off here. This is your final warning. Why? Well, because this world is scheduled for demolition. That's what he says, isn't it? In verse 26, 27. The warning bells are ringing. Time to get out. That's what he's saying, isn't it? God is still a consuming fire. Verse 29. It's not that it's all be you know, fine for everybody in the end. No, this current age, however pretty it looks, however whatever there is desirable in it, is scheduled for being shaken so that what cannot be shaken will stand. I, I think by shaken he presumably means something like an earthquake. And we've seen the power of earthquakes, haven't we, recently in Nepal. Seen the everything just gets knocked over, knocked flat. And all those hopes and things that people had 
all their treasured possessions that they had in their, their um, houses are buried under a big pile of rubble. And he says, that's the warning. You need to make sure you're not in a, a building that's going to be destroyed by an earthquake. I remember hearing that once. Somebody said, it's not earthquakes that kill people, it's buildings. So that's what falls on you and destroys you. And if we're in a city that's going to be destroyed, going to be shaken, then that is not a safe place to be. But he's giving us fair warning. And have you got the right exit pass? Because you're going to need it. And what is that pass? Well, he tells us, doesn't it? It's the same, actually, as that exit pass that the Jews had in, um, as that when they left Egypt. As judgment was coming on Egypt, it was the blood of the covenant, the blood of the sacrificed lamb. So we shouldn't be frivolous about this. We shouldn't be running in our monkey suits or in our chicken suits. This is a serious business, a serious race. We'll go through tough times. And when we do, we won't actually like it. I don't think anybody is supposed to like it as such. And yet, there should be joy to be found in it because that is the... Uh, it is yielding that fruit of righteousness that we have. And we shouldn't be discouraged because just as Abraham was seeking a city built by God, so are we. And although in one sense that city, you know, we're not living in that city in one sense, and yet the writer says, actually you have come to it now. You are citizens of heaven now. And even sitting here among the people of God. This is an, an outpost, as it were, of, of heaven. It may not be the, uh, we may not be, see the angels in joyful assembly, but this is nonetheless an outpost of the, the kingdom of heaven. This is part of that heavenly city now. And so we should find our, our joy in that. So what should our attitude be? Well, he tells us three things, doesn't he? Thankfulness, first of all, so that we shouldn't shouldn't get discouraged and, and like that, like you know that the boy who's disciplined say, oh, "I hate you. You don't care for me. I'm running away." But rather be thankful that God does care for us. Reverence. We need to take things seriously. Remember that. Um, well, that our God is a consuming fire. And then he says, awe. Interesting thing to, say, to finish with, isn't it? Awe. What's, awe is amazement at something bigger than we've, you know, we expected, I think. That's probably what awe means. And um, he says that we should have awe of the, the, what, the great salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, that not the awe of those Jews on Mount Sinai who were terrified by the thunder and the signs. But we should have awe nonetheless. But it's a different sort of awe, that awe that is found as we appreciate and see what Jesus has done for us as we come to see that city of God that is built by, not by human hands, but by God himself. So let's uh, close this portion of our worship by um, 
singing again. Let me go back to the... Uh, 